You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode number 222 of You Don't Know Flat. I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about the concession stand, the first job I ever had. But before we begin talking about the concession stand, let's take a few minutes to chat about what's been going on during this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, It's been a minute since I released an episode. We'll talk about why here in just a moment. Uh, I had a interesting thing happen at work recently, and it ties back to a recent episode of You Don't Know Flack. On episode 219, I talked about destroying data, and we talked about how to uh, destroy hard drives and destroy CDs and floppy disks and all those things that we normally talk about preserving. We normally talk about how to preserve data, and on that episode, we talked about destroying data. Um, but something that I never thought about discussing, uh, and that had never come up was how to destroy a router. Now, (laughs) destroying routers is not, um, something I normally, uh, would think about because a router, um, you remember the old, I mean, it used to be switches, right. Um, and routers. Um, but these are items that information passes through, but they don't retain data. As far as I'm concerned, they don't really retain data. But uh, I suppose there are instances in which they could. Now, recently at work, uh, we were contacted by a department I've never uh, worked directly with before. And this specific department handles top secret information. And they have a lab where they test, uh, do testing with PII, people's uh, real live uh, people's data, and they also have top secret information stored in this lab. And so they are upgrading the lab, and they need to upgrade to new switches uh, for their their network. And they sent us a document on the way we were supposed to dispose of their old network gear, (laughs) and it included instructions on the proper way to dispose of routers. Now, um, I don't want to get into routers, um, too, (laughs) too deep into routers. Um, now when I first started messing around with networks, we had, uh, uh, just simple routers, not, not even switches. We just had routers. So the way a router works, uh, and you know the thing I'm talking about, the big piece of networking gear that has a whole bunch of uh, network cables plugged into it, and it allows different machines to share information. Uh, the way a router more or less works, when, when I first started learning how to do networking, was uh, it was explained to me, it was kind of like a, a megaphone. 
So imagine a router with uh, <clears throat> 12 ports or 20 ports or however many ports. And so when you're trying to copy a file, let's say you've got 20 machines plugged into those 20 ports. And when you're trying to copy a file and you're plugged into port one uh, and you start copying a file to another machine, uh, you can imagine that that port just goes into the router and there's a little guy that goes, hey, uh, I got this file. Who wants it? <laughs> Who wants this information? And then everybody goes down and they all go, yeah, not not for me. No, thanks. Nope, that's not for me. I'll pass. And eventually one guy on that router will go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to have that. That, that looks like that goes for me. I'll take that. And so it just starts copying uh, the file there. So uh, back before networks used uh, encryption, like before HTTPS uh, was a standard before um, secure FTP and, and all these secure uh, types of network traffic. The problem was you could kind of eavesdrop <laughs> on that guy. And so if you were guy in port one and you were like, hey, I'm going to go log into my bank and port 20 of the router was the connection that went out to the internet and you had to log in with your username and password and you went into the little router and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm going to my bank. Uh, what, here's my username and password. You know, and so you're on port one and, and that's going out on port 20, but a guy on port 10 could be like, eh, I think I'm going to listen into this. I mean, you're shouting it in this tiny router. I'm just going to, I'm just going to listen here, see what I can pick up. Uh, but in that example, the uh, information is not stored in the router. It just kind of rattles around in there. It goes in and it goes back out. It goes, you know, from in this one port, not the other port. So, you know, while you're listening, I mean, while the information is going through, you can listen. But if somebody unplugs that router and throws it in the trash, you're not going to be able to get that guy's information. Now, a switch is kind of a modern version of a router. And the way that a switch works is is very similar. I mean, what it does is very similar. But... Uh, when you plug into a switch, uh, let's take that same piece of hardware. You got a, a big switch now, so it's not a router anymore. It's a switch, um, and you plug in uh, all those those twenty connections. Uh, inside there is a little tiny, tiny bitty computer. And when you plug it in, you plug in your machine. It says uh, the router says, or the switch. The switch says, "Hey, who are you?" And you go, "Well, you know, I'm Bill." <laughs> And this is my IP address, and uh, this is my my MAC address. This is who I am. And it goes great, okay, Bill. And so, and then when you log in, when you try to copy that file, you go, "Hey, I'm Bill, and I'm copying a file to Sally." The switch knows where Sally is. Sally is port plugged into port fifteen. So when Bill says, "Hey, I need to send this file to Sally," it knows all those other ports are not Sally. So it it knows just to connect port 1, port 15, and, and send the data uh, that way. And plus, uh, in addition to that, of course, now um, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't use this in your home. But um, let's say you're <clears throat> FTPing a file. Not only are you using a switch, but you're probably using secure FTP. So that information is encrypted between point 1 and point uh, 15. So, I mean, it gets into... I mean, that that would be that doesn't even qualify as as switches and routers one on one. That's a, a very 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 simplistic view. But the idea is that 
the information is never stored there. So in a switch situation, the only thing that's uh, actually stored in its memory is who's plugged into what port so that it can find you by your Mac address or uh, find what goes, what goes to what port. So uh, I don't think if you're copying secure files that anything would ever be stored inside that actual switch or inside a router. But uh, I could be wrong, but I just, I can't find any evidence of that, any technical evidence um, that the data would be stored in there. And if it were, I think you're talking about a matter of seconds or less once that device is turned off for that to go away again. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But um, anyway, uh, we, we were sent a, um, a list of ways that would be acceptable to dispose of this hardware equipment. And the one uh, that I got a kick out of said uh, pulverize. There were a couple of other verbs in there. Disintegrate was one. Uh, but pulverize was the one I liked because pulverize, I just imagine like the Hulk with giant boxy gloves, you know? Um, and so I told my boss, I said, you know, I, I'm not looking to change jobs. I'm, I'm really not looking to, to move to any other departments or do anything different than what I do now. But if I see a job bid that comes out that says <laughs> your job is to pulverize network equipment, I would apply for that job. Uh, if for um, no other reason, then I would love to have that on my resume. Um, I, and I would put like lead equipment pulverizer. <laughs> I think that'd be an awesome job title. That's the kind of job title you want on the back of your jacket. Like you just want a uh, jean jacket from the eighties with a big patch on the back that says, you know, network pulverizer. That's a good wrestling name. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that is a piece of hardware. I did not cover destroying in episode two nineteen. Um, the, uh, if you can hear me sniffling and, um, swallowing, um, uh, all this gunk that's in my throat, my nose, this is actually a, a later byproduct. But the other reason that I'm, I'm behind on recording shows is because uh, a couple of weeks ago, I finally, after say finally, as if it was something I was looking forward to is something I had been a, a dreadfully avoiding. Uh, but after two and a half years, I finally passed, uh, not passed, but, uh, tested positive for COVID. Now, uh, my family, uh, has taken COVID very seriously, uh, in, in the sense that I did not want to get it. <laughs> I did not want to catch COVID. Uh, and in 2020, uh, when, when they were, people were getting sick and people were dying, uh, and they said, you know, it's especially bad if you have certain like comorbidities and things like that. Um, like if you're uh, diabetic, which I was at the time, or they said, if you're obese, which I am and all these other things, I thought, boy, I have all these things <laughs> I, didn't, I really don't want, uh, COVID. And, um, uh, the minute that, uh, the vaccines were available, I said, sign me up. <laughs> I will take that shot immediately. And the day that boosters were available, I said, I will take that immediately. And, uh, I wore a mask, uh, longer than a lot of people. Um, it, it, it's very different. I, one thing that I have, uh, uh, come to realize is that, uh, people 
have been battling uh, COVID in different ways, depending on uh, the part of the country uh, or the part of the world that they live in. Uh, in Oklahoma, masks are a thing of the past. I haven't seen anyone wearing a mask in six months, except for uh, at the hospital when I went to go visit my dad when he was in the hospital. Um, but other than that, I don't see anybody wearing a mask on a daily basis. Not when we go out to eat, not when we go uh, to the gas station, not when I drop my kids off or go to the school, nowhere. And so, uh, you know, as you know, I watch a lot of van life videos and I watch these videos and I see people in other parts of the country who are still wearing masks all the time, every time they go out in public. And uh, it's very foreign to me that just a couple of states away um, that people are doing different things than, um, and I, it should never be a surprise that people are doing different things than what we're doing here in Oklahoma. But, uh, you know, it kind of got to the point where, uh, everybody, you had to go back to living. And, uh, so we were getting told it's time to come back to work. Uh, we were getting told it's time to go, go back to restaurants. It's time to go do these things. And it was very scary. It was very scary. Um, because again, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to get COVID. And, uh, uh, so my wife went on a trip to work, uh, for work. She flew to Washington, DC. Now we have been going back to restaurants and doing things for several months now, but, uh, uh she was on a, a plane trip uh, towards the end of October and uh, a member of the flight crew uh, wasn't feeling well and came and she was in a, uh, a window seat and there was an empty uh, middle seat and there was someone in the aisle. And this person who was coughing their head off came back and sat in that available middle seat and coughed all over the place during a four hour flight and apologized and told my wife and the other person, don't worry, it's not COVID. And within two days, my wife started feeling really bad. And a couple of days later, she tested positive for COVID. Um, and we tried uh, quarantining here in the house. And, uh, but the, the problem was the damage had already been done. <laughs> we had been hanging out together for three or four days, um, uh, definitely for two days before she really started feeling bad. And, um, you know, by the time she tested positive, we had been together so often, or, you know, so close, you know, sleeping in the same bed and bedroom and sitting on the couch together. It was, uh, I, I think I already had it <laughs> by that point. So, um, yeah, um, I don't have too much else to say about it. Um, I had, uh, again, I've, I had my vaccine and I've had my booster shots, um, and I got medicine from the doctor and with all of those things, my personal experience, I, I, it's different for everybody. My personal experience was it was about like having a medium case of the flu. Um, it was fairly miserable. My bones hurt. Um, I had a headache. I had the chills. I had a cough. Uh, and the cough has not really gone away. Uh, I, I tested positive uh, the uh Day, I think it was the day after Halloween is when I actually took a test and tested positive. But, uh, uh, you know, all the symptoms have for the most part gone away, except for, like I said, I still have a cough. And now it seems like I've maybe caught a cold uh, after COVID, which is separate from COVID. Um, uh, 
But the other thing is uh, the shortness of breath, which during COVID, I just had no energy. Like I couldn't, I didn't want to walk to the end of the driveway to check the mail. I didn't want to walk across the house. I just wanted to lay there and I watched a lot of movies. <laughs> I got, I'll never get caught up on movies. I shouldn't say I got caught up, but, uh, but I watched an awful lot of movies, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I just didn't feel like doing anything. And, uh, over the weekend, my wife and I went on a little short road trip and, uh, I still find myself being out of breath. If we walk too far, going somewhere, I'm hoping that that's not a, uh, a permanent, you know, long-term you hear, I read all this about long-term, uh, COVID effects, but, uh, I can, I can feel it. I can feel it right now while I'm podcasting. I feel myself taking, um, more frequent and, and deeper breaths. So, uh, I'm, uh, hoping that that's a, a temporary thing. And that that goes away. I'm, it's certainly not a debilitating uh, condition. It's not like I don't f- I don't feel like I can't you know uh, get out of the house and go do things. But it, it's uh, um, it, it's there. And then and then of course like uh, uh, like anything in life, once you notice it, then you start worrying about it. You're like, wow, am I am I'm breathing weird? Am I breathing funny? Uh, and again. Uh, having this cold now right after getting over COVID doesn't, doesn't help the situation. So, uh, my wife is fine. Uh, I'm pretty fine. We're going to be fine. We're going to get through it. Uh, I think the idea of it was very scary to me and, uh, uh, but, uh, we're, we're on the other side of it now. And so, um, anyway, you can't, uh, rest on your, uh, what's the word rest on your laurels. Is that right? You can't sit on your haunches. You can't, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the euphemism is, um, but uh, you can't wait around forever for life to uh, return. So life is returned. And with that is podcasting. So uh, if you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hare at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And with that, all the show notes have loaded. So let's get started talking about this episode's topic, which is the concession stand. I grew up as a child in a blue collar home. Uh, I believe if you look at numbers, we fall somewhere between the lower middle class and middle class section. Uh, My dad worked in a print shop uh, the whole time I was growing up. My mom babysat a few kids. Uh, So I would, back then we said uh, she was a babysitter. Now you would probably call it a home daycare, but uh, uh, that's mostly what my mom did when I got a little older. She uh, re-entered the workforce. But um, we didn't have a lot of spare money. I, I always say that we had enough. There's very rarely that I remember wanting things and having my parents say, you know, we just can't afford that. Somehow they were able to make things work. 
but we certainly weren't uh, wealthy or well off um, or uh, affluent <laughs> or any of those uh, phrases that we use when we mean people that have extra money. Now, uh, my dad was always into things that had motors. Uh, he liked uh, muscle cars and he liked motorcycles. And so when I was a young kid, I got a motorcycle. I had a go-kart. Uh, my sister had a small three-wheeler for a while. And when I turned 14 years old for my birthday, this would have been ninth grade, my parents got me a Honda CB125 motorcycle. I don't remember how much they paid for this. It was a Maybe $500 sounds about right. Uh, I remember that it was, it belonged to a retired couple who had it on the back of their RV. So they would go on trips and just use this motorcycle to uh, uh, put around town on whenever they got to their destination. And so uh, in Oklahoma and in some states, you can get a motorcycle, legal street motorcycle driver's license when you're 14. Uh, you had to be 16, of course, to get a regular driver's license, but uh, a motorcycle one you could get when you're 14. So that's what I did. I got my driver's license, and the minute I was 14, I could go out and drive and do whatever I wanted. Now, uh, one of the things that came with this was I was going to need money. Uh, I needed money for gas. Now, this motorcycle, I looked this up. And a CB125 claims that it gets 90 miles to the gallon. I don't think that I got quite that much, um, but it was really, really good on gas mileage. So uh, I, I didn't need a lot of money, but I did need money for gas. And then because I had this motorcycle, I was going to places that also required money, like the local arcade or going to a restaurant you know, to buy food. So money just became something that I needed around that age. I also needed money for things like buying blank floppy disks. That wasn't something that my parents were necessarily uh, supplying me with. And I got into music pretty early on and I wanted money to be able to buy uh, cassette tapes. By the time I got this job, uh, records were, were uh, kind of out for me. It was all, all about cassette tapes. So uh, really when I got that motorcycle, it became obvious that I was going to need uh, at least some sort of part-time job as well. Now I have talked on the show and on all my podcasts, Sprite Castle and this podcast, uh, particularly about my buddies, Jeff and Andy, all of my, uh, stories from my childhood in some way end up <laughs> with some sort of connection uh, to either Jeff or Andy. Now, Jeff uh, was my buddy that I met in seventh grade, who I am still friends with today. Uh, and Andy, uh, who, who I interviewed on episode, uh, I think it was 200 around that of You Don't Know Flack, uh, I met what, before we started kindergarten, and we're also still friends today. They're, they're the two uh, uh, longest uh, friends that I've had in my life. So, uh, it's not really, uh, and one of the things that's interesting about my friendship with them is, uh, I met Andy because he lived on my street and I met Jeff because we had a class together in seventh grade. Now, 
even though it wasn't the basis of our friendships, Andy's dad had a Commodore 64 and Jeff in his room had a Commodore 64. So <laughs> I knew these two guys that they both had Commodore 64 computers. And then later after meeting them both, I found out that their sisters were on the same softball team. And so, uh, and I believe their, um, mom, well, all of our moms were all part of the same bowling league. So they all, all the moms knew each other. Uh, and then when I, you know, I became friends with Jeff, I'd already been friends with Andy. And then later I found out that Jeff and Andy had already known each other. So it was this really, this kind of tight triangle, uh, of families where, uh, you know, all of us knew each other and, and we were all friends and, uh, and just some extent our, our sisters were friends. Uh, so it was a, a really great, uh, three-way relationship between all of our families. Now, Jeff's mom worked for the JCs, which was associated with, uh, our town. Um, I don't even know how to explain it really, but, but they were in charge of doing certain things for the city. And one of the things, uh, that the JCs were in charge of was stocking and running a group of local concession stands. Now, these concession stands uh, existed in multiple places. There was one at the community center, and that was the concession stand that was open during basketball season uh, for the city's league of children's uh, basketball games was, was there. Uh, there was a concession stand outside the, the uh, community center, which was used for a uh, baseball and softball. There was another one for football. And then there was another uh, middle school on the other side of town that also had a concession stand. So wherever the action was, they needed kids to work in these concession stands. Now, because Jeff's mom uh, was on this board, Jeff got a job working at the concession stand. Uh, and I want to say he started working there in eighth grade. So this would have been uh, at a time when I knew him, but before I started there. And then I think through their moms, Andy got a job working at the concession stand. So When I found out that both of them worked at the same concession stand, I was super jealous because when you're a kid, and especially this type of job, didn't really seem like a job. It was like they were hanging out. But the thing was is that Jeff's mom was on this board, so she was always going to these events. Um, and so she would pick up Andy or something, and then they would all go and work at these things. Well, I was, you know, 13 at the time. My mom wasn't going to drive me to some job where I was making almost nothing, you know. So uh, it, it was just a convenient thing that they were able to do that it didn't work out that I was able to do uh, until uh, I got that motorcycle's license. So I got my motorcycle's license in August, uh, right before ninth grade started, like a week before ninth grade started. And this was about the time that basketball season was about to kick off. And they said they had an opening 
at the concession stand. So uh, I talked to um, uh, Jeff's mom and they said, yeah, they had openings. And it turns out it's hard to explain. It wasn't like there was employees as in I didn't fill out an application. Uh, I didn't apply for the job. It was just, oh, there's this kid uh, that will work. But <clears throat> there were a lot of parents <laughs> that worked on this uh, board and all of them that had kids of the right age wanted their kids to do this because they could just drag their kid and then their kid was going to get paid. Um, so it was kind of competitive to be able to get this spot. But if you were a reliable person and you were a good employee and by good employee, I mean, adults weren't complaining about you, uh, then you got called back. And so very early on, uh, I mean, almost immediately, I just became a, a permanent employee of this concession stand or all the concession stands. Now, uh, in the fall of ninth grade, this would have been the beginning of basketball season. Uh, so basketball was played indoors at our local community center. Again, there were uh, teams of all ages. I remember there being very, very young kids, like five, six, seven, like whatever that league is, all the way up to um, maybe not high school age, but middle school kind of age. That, that's mostly what I remember. Uh, there may have been outliers uh, in that range, but that that's kind of uh, uh, what I remember. So uh, we would go, and right off the bat, I mean, if you talk about hitting the ground running, these games were scheduled, there would be two games a night, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that would be four days a week. Uh, I am in a, uh, area that has a lot of churches. It's a pretty religious area. And so they did not play in school or sporting events on Wednesday nights. Uh, so there were no games on Wednesdays. Um, but a game would last almost two hours. So the shift was from five 30 in the evening until 1030 in the evening. And basically what that meant was you got there at five 30, you spent five 30 to six getting the concession stand opened, stocked, all the stuff you needed to do. Uh, the first game would be, you know, basically from six to eight, there would be a short break. The next game would last until about 10. And then once everything was done, you shut everything down, closed up, and then it was 1030. Uh, and you went home. Now there were multiple positions when you worked at the concession stand. Uh, the very first one is, um, uh, the concession stand itself. You stood behind a counter. We served drinks. We served food. We served candy. That was <laughs> the majority of, of what we sold in the concession stand. Uh, there was another position who uh, was responsible for taking gate admission. Now, these games cost money uh, to go inside. You would... Uh, uh, you know, I, I remember if it was like a dollar or something like that, but it was always adults. Uh, kids were free, but if it was an adult, it was supposed to be $1 per person. So you had to hit up every single person, uh, for a dollar. And there was definitely, uh, um, some, some down <laughs> downsides to that. Um, the, the biggest downside was when adults would come up and lie to you to your face and say, Oh, I'm just going inside to get something. And you would just stare at him and be like, uh-huh, okay. 
and then you would watch him go in and sit down and watch the game and and um that that was that was pretty annoying but anyway i'm getting ahead of myself um then uh during the game there was another position where you ran the scoreboard uh, and the time clock so two of us would go down and sit courtside and uh one person would run the electronic scoreboard and there were buttons for adding points and timeouts and what quarter you're in. It was a whole electronic board. It was very fun to do. Starting and stopping the clock was fun. Uh, and the other person kept track of the books because you, it was this whole league. And so you had to have, you had to keep track of, you know, who committed a foul and who this, like, oh, who scored a bucket and all this. So the other person was constantly, uh, watching the game and writing down uh, the numbers, you know, who, who did all the, uh, who, who did what in the game. So those were your three basic positions. You had the people inside the concession stand, you had the gate attendance person, and then you had the people doing the scoreboard. Now, uh, in between the games, so or when the game wasn't happening, three people would be in the concession stand and one person would be taking gate attendance. Uh, when the game started, the gate attendance person, like two of the concession people would go out to the scoreboard. The attendance person, once people stopped coming in, would come in and help with the concession stand. So you you kind of moved around. And notice by these numbers, I'm saying there are four people. Very quickly, three of the four were me, Jeff, and Andy. And then there was a rotating uh, fourth person, which was would just be somebody's uh, random kid that they would bring, and and so there would be a fourth person. But there were many times where just the three of us uh, did it, and and um, again, I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. But uh, when there was only three of us, the worst part was being on the concession stand because you had to do all these sales by yourself while the other two were off doing the scoreboard. Again, this is all just at this one location at the community center. Uh, different different locations we did. I'll talk about uh, had slightly different configurations. Now, for all of these job duties that we had, working in the concession stand, taking the money, doing the scoreboard, whatever, uh, the pay was three dollars an hour plus all you can eat and drink. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this right now. That was the best deal you could get. For four or three 14-year-old teenagers. Uh, there was, if you, <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, I can't even explain just how great it was uh, to have a job where you ate junk, <laughs> hung out with your best friends. Uh, and then I was like, wait a minute, they're going to pay us too? <laughs> It was, uh, you know, I had a, a friend, another friend of mine that I've mentioned on the show, Lewis, who also had a motorcycle and Lewis, uh, worked at a greenhouse. And I remember asking Lewis what he did. And he was like, I carried dirt and plants all day. <laughs> that sounds terrible. He'd be like, what did you do? Like I ate nachos and drank Dr. Pepper for five hours. <laughs> and then they paid me. <laughs> oh man, what a great job this was. So as I mentioned, uh, during the games, Two of us would go down and work the scoreboard and run the books. And the other two of us would uh, stay inside the concession stand. Now, the concession stand was literally 
um, six feet away from the door that opened into the gymnasium. So you could see the game, but you couldn't see your other two friends. Um, but, uh, uh, it was mostly like boxed candy, uh, that you sold, which I think was all 50 cents. Uh, I remember we had stuff like gumballs, um, which I want to say were like two for a quarter jawbreakers, stuff like that. Uh, we made nachos and hot dogs and popcorn. That was our big three, uh, foods. Um, also everything was cash. There was no credit card and there were no taxes. Um, and in fact, there was no cash register. There was just one of those change boxes that I associate with garage sales, one of those little metal boxes. So people would come up and say, I, you know, I want four candy bars. You go, great. $2. <laughs> I don't remember how much hot dogs and nachos were, um, but it, it, they would have been some round number. Everything was basically a round number. Uh, so our, our change box consisted of, um, ones and a few fives and quarters. That was basically, uh, what we, we dealt with now. Uh, the worst part about being in the, the concession stand and, and most of it was great, but the worst part about being in the concession stand was at the end of the game because everybody would come rushing out. Well, there was always that rush uh, at the beginning of a game, right? But the, uh, league did a thing where after a game, every player got a free drink. So at the end of the game, all of a sudden you would have 20, 25 kids in jerseys all standing there yelling at you. Like, I want a Pepsi. I want a Coke. I want a Dr. Pepper. You know, I think we only had like four or five drinks on our little soda thing. Uh, and occasionally we would try to, um, make drinks in advance, (laughs) but I don't remember that, um, uh, working out very well. But, uh, um, you know, during the games themselves, it was a really slow job. Now, unfortunately this predates, uh, cell phones or, um, I don't even think we had, uh, none of us had like a, a game boy. This, this I think predates game boy, um, or it, it would be close, but none of us had that. So there were no, we didn't have any electronics. I didn't own any portable electronics, uh, at that time. So it was just, uh, you know, we entertained ourselves by, um, hanging out with our friends and eating. <laughs> that was our, our two things. Now, um, being on the, the scoreboard thing, there was a, a very interesting thing that we were taught, um, early on. And, uh, <clears throat> a lot of these games, especially with younger teams would be blowouts. Uh, one of the teams would be really, really good and know how to play. And the other team wouldn't have anybody that knew how to play basketball or shoot. So, um, I don't think there was ever like a, and there was, now I say that, uh, there is like a run rule where you couldn't be, I think more than 20 points ahead of your opponent. So, uh, if one team and it happened, if one team was 20 and the other one was zero, and then the team who was 20 would score another bucket, you, you weren't supposed to add the points to the scoreboard. Uh, you just kept it at 20 to zero. <laughs> and then, uh, when the other team would score and now it was two to 20, you didn't automatically go back and add all those points they had lost. It was just now two to 20. But then if they scored again, it would be um, a two to 22. But because of these ages, they were younger kids, there tended to be a lot of blowout games. And so uh, the referees had this uh, signal 
Uh, they had a couple of signals, but one was they would rub their, it would look at us like right dead in the eye. You couldn't miss it. They would turn around and stare at us and they would kind of rub their hand on their chins or on their, the side of their face. Like they were running their hands over the stubble of their beard, you know, and that was the code for shave. And what that meant was it's time to start shaving time off the clock. <laughs> now, there were a couple of tricks that we were taught. One was, um, let's say the counter, the timer, and, and like I remember these being, I think they were five-minute quarters. So when it would get down to like, let's say the three-minute mark, so it would be 303, 302, 301, 3. 259, 258. Okay. When it flopped over that minute, if you did it exactly right, you could hit the minute button and take a minute off the clock. So most people didn't notice this, but during a blowout game, <laughs> if you've watched the clock, sometimes it would go 302, 301, 300, 159. 158 <laughs> and you had to hit it right on that second so that it, the, the two never showed up, but you could take a minute off the clock. Now I remember getting caught doing this. Uh, a parent would stand up and be like, Hey, the clock took an extra minute, you know, and they would yell at us and we'd be like, I don't know what happened. You know, and we'd put the minute back on there and the referees would give us a look, you know, it's like, well, what could you do? You know, we tried, um, but these were games where uh, that were a complete blowout, and everybody really just wanted them over. Uh, the other thing that we would do is uh, forget to stop the clock. So <laughs> on things like if there was a foul and somebody got to shoot a free throw, you're supposed to stop the clock and let them go up and do that. But we would just quote unquote accidentally forget to stop the clock and let it keep running. Uh, until a parent would yell and somebody would be like, hey, the clock's still running, you know, and you'd, you'd, you'd go, oh, gosh, forgot, sorry. And then you'd stop it, you know. But, I mean, just anything to get the time off of those brutal games where things were uh, out of control. So if you're a parent and you've ever seen that happen at a ball game and they said it was an accident, I got bad news for you. <laughs> it probably um, wasn't an accident. Now, uh, I never personally played, uh, team sports as a kid. I never, well, I, that's not true. I did play soccer as a young kid, but I never played anything. Uh, once I was, I mean, I quit playing soccer when I was in third or fourth grade. Uh, so I never played basketball. I never played baseball. Uh, I never played football, but this was definitely where I developed an interest in basketball. Um, watching the coaches, watching strategies, watching how things worked. Uh, this, this got me into basketball and I am a lifelong fan, uh, of basketball. Now, uh, it, it's a, the, the NBA sometimes is hard to follow because especially nowadays with social media and, and the internet, there's so much, uh, news about the players and, uh, you know, the, like so-and-so's on a reality show or they're dating so-and-so or they they said this on Twitter. And I just, I don't care about that. Um, but what I really developed an interest for was the game. 
um, what the positions did, how to run an offense, how to run a defense, what to, what to do, you know, and, and, um, I just really got into basketball and I, and I think I could trace it back, uh, to this, uh, this specific time, you know, now, uh, again, going back to the configuration, it wasn't like the three of us got to hang out all the time because, you know, two of us would be running the game and, and one would be in the concession stand, or sometimes two of us would be in the concession stand and one of us would have to go run the game with somebody else. Um, but, uh, we, we always split it up. We always made it fair. And, uh, again, at some point you would be hanging out with one of your best friends. So, uh, just imagine being able to like go to some place, hang out with your best friend for a few hours, sit around eating nachos and free nachos and free hot dogs and drinking all the Dr. Pepper you wanted and, or whatever your drinking choice was, you know, orange soda, uh, and, and then getting paid, you know, um, and the thing, uh, in, in the original, uh, agreement, we got paid cash at the end of the night. So you would go there and you would work five hours, five thirty to ten thirty, and then they would give you fifteen bucks. <laughs> and you would be like I never eat dinner before I went because I knew I was gonna be eating all this junk food and stuff. But uh um it, like I said, I just can't uh overstate what a great uh, arrangement it was for a bunch of uh you know teenage boys with just <laughs> like never ending hunger. <laughs> like we were never full. Uh, and just to go up there and, and eat, eat hot dogs and do all that stuff, uh, all night long, just a, a, a great arrangement. Now, um, again, I, I, th- I was, I was picked up to be part of this group because I was reliable and I had my own transportation, you know? Uh, so they said, what, what days could you be here? I said, I could be here every day, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So if you do that math, uh, this job was, uh, uh, $3 an hour. And so if you made five bucks or uh, five hours, that's $15. And then four days a week, uh, that's 60 bucks, right? Um, so, so there was really nothing to not like, I looked this up when I started, uh, working at this job, which would have been in 1987 when I was 14, had my motorcycle. Uh, in Oklahoma, the average price that year of gas was 90 cents a gallon. <laughs> and again, this thing, this motorcycle got around 90 gallons. I mean, that's the advertised uh, uh, miles per gallon. It got 90 gallons or 90 miles to the gallon. So, you know, if I put one gallon in a week or two gallons, I mean, that was two bucks. And then I was making 60. So I had all the money in the world for a 14 year old. Uh, I think new cassettes, uh, I was paying like six 99 for new albums, you know? So I would go to this local store and, and I would just load up on cassettes. Uh, I remember buying, if you went to someplace like Walmart or target, you could get a box of 10 floppies for about five bucks. But I found this place, uh, that was mail order where I could get a hundred discs, a hundred floppy disks, and then they would send you a hundred sleeves that were separate, <laughs> like they weren't uh, combined together. Uh, and that was $30 for a hundred disks. So $60 a week was a lot of money. But on top of that, 
sometimes we had tournament weekends. Now, on a tournament weekend, uh, they would have us work. Of course, you worked Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, right? But they would have basketball games sometimes on Saturday for up to 12 hours. Like it might start at 8 in the morning and end at 8 o'clock at night. And on Sunday, it might be half the day, like starting at noon and going till 5 or 6. So you could really rack up the money on a tournament weekend. Uh, and I was – I don't know how to explain it. I was kind of addicted to working as much as possible um, because my friends were at this job. So uh, there wasn't um, a lot to do <laughs> at home when all your friends were gone. So I would get home from school and then call BBSs for an hour or two and then set up a download or whatever and then leave and go do this job, you know? And then when I got home, do some homework and then and then go to bed. I mean, it was just a, a really great arrangement, a really fun first job. Now, basketball season uh, is an indoor sport. Basketball is an indoor sport. Uh, and we worked throughout the fall and the winter. And then when the spring came, it was time for baseball. Now, sometimes we worked at the concession stand, but there was another park in town known as Hillcrest. Hillcrest Park is still there. It's a small park that has a full-size baseball field and a concession stand. Uh, and so whenever we worked baseball, so the same group of people, we moved from the concession stand over to the baseball field in the spring. Uh, but when you worked at Hillcrest, they only needed three people. They didn't need four. And so the three people became me, Jeff and Andy. We didn't have a fourth person. So, uh, two of us and, and, uh, let me, let me explain the, the layout of this building. The concession stand was probably, uh, I don't know, 12 feet wide, maybe. Uh, and then the area we stood in. I it was four foot deep or six foot deep, something like that, but it was a wooden structure and it was built on behind us were the bathrooms, uh, <laughs> the public bathrooms for Hillcrest. So, um, uh, that part was cinder block. And then I feel like, I don't remember if our part was, I think ours was maybe cinder block with wood, uh, as the roof or something like that. But it, it um, uh, you know, it was a permanent structure, but I wouldn't want to be in there during a tornado. <laughs> That's kind of a good way, uh, a good way to put it. Now, the location of the concession stand was right when you walked into the baseball field and there was a window uh, on the left-hand side on the end of the building where people walked by. So if you were doing the admission part, you could stand at that window and then on the long side of the building uh, was a long window, and that's where you stood if you were doing the concession stand. So now the three of us were working from 5.30 to 10.30 at night or whatever our hours were, uh, and all three of us were in the same building that whole time. So this was literally like the three of us having our own clubhouse with unlimited food, <laughs> unlimited junk food and candy and drinks. Uh, and occasionally serving customers. <laughs> um, I think if this were a business for profit, I don't know how much profit they would have made because, uh, to be 
completely frank, I think we were eating a lot of the profits. Like we were just uh, eating hot dogs like crazy and eating nachos, um, and and you know drinking soda thing like that. Like I, I think um, it's pretty tough to drink too much soda for to, uh, you know drink more than than what soda costs. But but we tried, <laughs> uh, and so it was just the three of us working in this you know, rectangular building, taking people's money as they came in and selling concession stands, uh, out the front. Again, I, one of my biggest memories of working there is having adults come in that would say like, Oh, I just got to go in and get something from my wife. And the thing is when you're an adult and you see kids that are 14, you think they're dumb, but when you're 14 and you're, you feel like you're an adult. Like I thought, why do people lie to me and think that I'm stupid? (laughs) Like I, we knew, that they were going to go, that they were lying to us, that they were going to go in and sit down and watch the game and you just roll your eyes. Or, or sometimes I remember they would walk out uh, and and I would say something like, hey, did you find your wife or something like that? And then they would just shoot you a look because you knew um, what they were doing. You know what I mean? Uh, now, the thing about Hillcrest is um, when – when we all worked at the concession stand, I remember Jeff's mom staying there a lot or another adult being there, but because of where Hillcrest was, uh, and because it was outdoors, there was nowhere inside for a parent to sit. And so a lot of times like Jeff and Andy just got dropped off and then I rode my motorcycle. Uh, but, but we were just kind of dropped off there. So there was nowhere, there was no adult supervision, uh, we didn't, we didn't have a telephone. Nobody had a cell phone. And so we were just kind of on our own. We were just had to deal with stuff until, you know, 10 o'clock at night when an adult would come and, uh, somebody from the board would come and they would, you know, take the money and lock up the, the building. And, and one of our parents would come or one of their parents, Jeff's mom or Andy's mom would come pick them up and I would ride home on my motorcycle. But, uh, for those three, four, five hours, uh, throughout the week. And then again, um, there were baseball tournaments as well. Uh, we would be on our own. Uh, if, if an adult was mad, you had to deal with it. If somebody complained, you had to fix it. There wasn't, uh, anybody for us to turn to, you know, um, now Hillcrest basically, uh, again, was, was all, uh, you know, like I said before, all the candy stuff, we did have hot dogs and popcorn, uh, and drinks. Um, and one of the things I remember was, uh, because we were so bored, um, and maybe that's not the right word. It wasn't like we were sitting around being bored, but just because we had all this time, I remember us making up like inventing new types of food. It was very common for us to make hot dogs and then get the nacho cheese from the nacho cheese thing uh, and put that in there. Uh, I seem to remember us trying to like mix popcorn with nachos or, you know, put the melted cheese from the nachos on popcorn. Uh, But there was one time I remember Andy had taken Reese's pieces, uh, like Reese's peanut butter cups. And frozen them in in the freezer. And then uh, once they were totally frozen solid, he pulled them out and smashed them. And they shattered into little pieces. He just smashed them over and over and got them into little pieces. And then took a Dr. Pepper 
uh, that was about three quarters full and poured the frozen pieces in there. So they were almost like ice, but the ice was broken pieces of Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> and I remember uh, my friends remind me of me saying this, but I, I said to Andy, I said, Andy, don't let anybody ever tell you you're not a genius. <laughs> That's one of our jokes to this day. Uh, I will occasionally say that to Andy and he knows uh, instantly um, what I'm talking about. But again, uh, I don't remember selling a lot of, uh, we sold a lot of popcorn cause it was cheap. I think a bag of popcorn was 50 cents. Uh, and you got like one of those, like a school size, big bag, you know, of popcorn. Um, but the most important thing was drinks. They always said never run out of drink. I mean, not that we could control anything, but you never wanted to run out of drinks because, um, again, like at the end of the game, all these baseball players came up and, and wanted drinks and the coaches would settle up and they would say, okay, that was, you know, uh, 15 drinks. And so you'd have to figure out how much the money was and, and they would pay for it and stuff. But, um, but the drinks, uh, seemed to be the most important thing. Uh, and again, at Hillcrest, we had tournaments and you could easily make a hundred bucks, uh, you know, a week if you, if you added on a tournament and all this stuff was, was cash. Um, I don't want to say under the table, but I think under the table doesn't necessarily mean, um, like nobody knows you're getting paid, but under the table in the sense that we didn't, uh, we didn't pay taxes. We didn't claim income. Uh, and the money was just coming from the profits of what they were making, you know, from this concession stand. So, um, you know, $3, you know, when I started this job, well, uh, two years later, when I got a job working in fast food, when I turned 16, minimum wage back then was three thirty-five an hour. So I was making almost minimum wage, but without taxes. So we were definitely making more, taking home more than someone who was making uh, minimum wage at the time. Plus again, I just can't stress uh, how much garbage we ate. I mean, we were literally three teenage walking garbage cans. <laughs> um, so we went, you know, from the summer of working at the thing. And then once the summer was over, it was fall and it was time to go back to, uh, the community center and it was time for basketball again. And, and, uh, there was, again, uh, we had an old high school that was, uh, really old. They, they decommissioned it. I never got to attend this high school, but it was called the Alamo because it had these, uh, it just looked like the Alamo. It was a big gray building with a, uh, the front. It just, just kind of had that shape. And so everybody called it the Alamo. Um, but in, uh, 10th grade now, Jeff and Andy are both about 10 months older than I am. Their birthday is at the very beginning of the school year. And mine was just like a week shy of the cutoff. Uh, so, um, whenever we were in 10th grade, they both got their driver's licenses. So all of a sudden they could drive, uh, to work. And, uh, I was still riding my motorcycle, you know, but, um, uh, we, it, it, something about the job changed once we had, uh, uh, transportation. So I don't, uh, think that we, I want to say this. I don't think that we ever intentionally 
lied about the money that was owed to us. So let me back up. Uh, One of the problems began, or one of the problems became getting paid um, in a timely manner with this job. So uh, Andy and Jeff both had uh, Z28s. Uh, Andy had a 1978 uh, Z28, and Jeff had a 1980 Z28. I hope that's not their reset password <laughs> online. Uh, and so, uh, so they they needed a lot more gas than I needed. You know, I was still using a dollar or two a week with my motorcycle, uh, and a, a 1980 Z28 with a V8 uses a lot more gas. Uh, and so there would be days where, like, if someone didn't come to pay us, we weren't supposed to take the money out of the till uh, because Jeff would take the till home, home to his mom, and that would be our change for the next day. So we didn't always get paid on a day-to-day basis. So what would happen is at the end of the week, they would come to restock the concession stand, and we would say – you know, nobody's paid us this week. And they would tell us or ask us, well, how many hours? And we were like, well, we worked five hours Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and do the math. And you go, that's $60 a piece. So I think when we be, we began working there, if you pay a kid 15 bucks a night, it's not that big of a deal. But now you're, you're like, oh, I'm paying somebody $60 a week times three. So all three of us. So now it's $180. So it seems, it's the same amount of money but it seems like more money because you're doing it times three and you're doing it all at once. Or again, for those um, tournament weekends, if it was a hundred dollars, then we're, we're all standing there with our hands out. And it's like, okay, you owe us $300 for the three of us. So um, the problem was, so I'm going to get back to my statement, which was we never intentionally lied about how much they owed us. But the problem was we didn't always keep great track either. So sometimes we would say, oh, I was there five hours or was it four? Was it, did we do that night or not? You know, because it would go a week or sometimes it would go two weeks. Um, and then we would start badgering them like, hey, nobody's paying us. Uh, and then they would say, oh, what do you, you know, and they were like, what do, what do we owe you, $3? And you're like, no, somebody owes me $200. <laughs> and so it 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 just kind of became – um uh, this, um, problems that, uh, getting, getting paid. So when you're a kid and you're not getting paid in a timely manner, you start getting this bad attitude, like, well, they owe me money and they're not paying me. So they owe me this. Right. So I, like, I remember we could never do this before because I was the only, I had a motorcycle and you couldn't carry that much on a motorcycle and we weren't that creative, but, um, you know, once Andy and Jeff had their cars and we would be like, well, they haven't paid us in a week. I'm going to take money out of the thing and I'm going to go buy tacos at Taco Bell, which by the way, tacos back then from Taco Bell were 49 cents um, or 59 cents. So, uh, you know, if you went and got a, a 10 pack of tacos for the, the three of us to split, you're really talking like $6, you know, now that that's not, it's not right <laughs> for us to have done that, but we started justifying this by saying, well, they're not, they're not paying us, you know, so we're just going to take this money and go buy tacos with it. But of course, when they did pay us, we didn't say like, oh, hey, by the way, we took $6 out of here (laughs) and bought tacos. Um, And, uh, 
I, I don't know if anybody was getting loans out there. There was a um, there was a fourth employee uh, that I haven't really talked about. Um, there was a fourth person who was not our friend. It was a, a child of of one of the other board members. Uh, first of all, it was a girl, and it was somebody that we didn't know. So there was a three of us and some girl, uh, and she was like really uh, popular and and really good looking. And in no uh, world would she give us the time of day. Um, certainly not. Uh, at school and barely uh, at work, she did not want to be around us. Um, she would. She was. Um, uh, that's a that's a hard age uh, for girls, you know. So she did not want to um, like eat in front of us. <laughs> she didn't want to uh, do any of those. You know, she wouldn't sit there and, and eat food with us or or any of that. Uh, but this was mostly with the the basketball, not not. Uh, um, not at Hillcrest where it was just the three of us, but the worst was when uh, two of you would leave to go do the books and the other one would get stuck with this girl, the concession stand who didn't want to talk to anybody. It was very uh, awkward, a very awkward situation, but uh, it became pretty obvious that uh, this girl was taking money. Uh, she would volunteer to be the person to take admissions and a hundred people would come through, and then at the end of the night there would be fifty dollars. Well, either half the people didn't pay, or she kept some of the money. Uh, and it, you know, it wasn't our job to bust her or anything. But uh, when the minute anybody asks, like, you know, when you're a kid, you give somebody up in a minute, especially when they're not your friend. Um, and uh, we were like, yeah. You know, she was doing admissions and the admissions is what's short. So, uh, you know, it was, it, the thing was, is it was, it was kind of ruining the gig for all of us. Uh, cause it looked like we were all stealing money and we weren't. Um, but nobody ever caught her doing this, but it was just really obvious. It was kind of like this unspoken kind of secret that it was her. And, uh, I don't, I, I think it was around our senior year, maybe between our junior and senior years. She was involved in a, a car accident and got killed. <laughs> so, um, so then we were like, "Well, I guess that's uh, uh But it, it was after it was after the concession stand, you know. But uh, uh, so it's it's not anybody that I've run into uh, since high school and, and said, "Hey, by the way, were you stealing a lot of money?" Um, but you know, because of that incident, I think they started watching the money a little bit more closely as well. So. Uh, it, it was like this perfect, this perfect thing. And we were screwing it up, uh, as kids, as kids do. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think today, like, God, what a great job. What a re great retirement job that would have been. I could just go back there and say, you know, whatever, a few, few dollars or a dollar less than whatever minimum wage is, I'll work here and I'll just stand around and eat popcorn and, and hot dogs and, and, um, you pay me cash with no taxes. <laughs> what a what a great job that would be. Uh, now I do have a few stories uh, that I I remember from uh, uh, working at the concession stand, and the first one, which happened at Hillcrest, and I've got to tell you, I'm I was really 
digging into my heart and thinking, is the statute of limitations up for this story? <laughs> and I do believe it is. Um, but the Hillcrest <laughs> ball field, uh, this park had a small park area. It had uh, the big baseball diamond. It had our concession stand. And then it had this giant metal warehouse, like a metal building warehouse that belonged to my town's parks and recreation uh, board. And it was, it was used for a lot of different things. It was just full of storage. And one of the guys on the board uh, had gone in there one time and we could see what was in there. And it was like everything that your city uses, like all the Christmas decorations were stored there. All the um, like road signs and stuff like stop signs, like everything that for the parks and recreation uh, building or, you know, uh, more, it was just like the whole city uh, stuff was stored in there. And so uh, there was, so we knew that this guy <clears throat> had a key to this. Uh, and um, one day this employee opened the concession stand for us. And I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. But I, I think what it was, I think we were at a different concession stand. And this guy gave me his keys and said, hey, I need you to go to the other concession stand, unlock the door, and get whatever it was we're out of, bubble gum or this or that or whatever, and bring it back. And I said, okay. Uh, so we immediately hatched a plan and it's amazing when you're a teenager, how quickly you can launch a bad idea. And what we did was we left, uh, it was, uh, uh, I remember we, we had to have gone in Jeff or Andy's car. I don't remember whose car it was. Um, but we had to go get a bunch of stuff and I only had my motorcycle. So, so we had to go in one of their cars. We left and we immediately went to Walmart where they would copy a key for you for a dollar. <laughs> and we looked at these keys and we were like, this is a car key. This is a house key. And then there was one that said city something. And we knew that was the key to that building. And we took it off the key ring and went into Walmart, gave it to the guy, paid a dollar and made a copy of that key, put it back on the ring, ran over to the, the concession stand, got the gum, came back. But now we had a key to the city building. <laughs> And so, uh, we went there to the city building one night and, uh, took a, one of those road construction, uh, signs, like the, the thing that you set up in the street, the little sandwich board thing with the flashing yellow light on the top of it. Um, I took one and, um, it was in my, it was in my bedroom for a long time. And I remember my, my mom came home one time. And she said, she uh, was driving down the street and she said, you know, it looks like there's a UFO in our house because there's this flashing yellow light <laughs> that you can see through your shades all the way down the street. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, that's a, probably a bad idea. And by the way, those things run off a battery. I didn't know this, but eventually the, the, the um, the blinking slows down and then it gets dimmer and eventually it goes out, which is what, what happens to that. So, um, <clears throat> I want to say in that building, there was, um, like a, tr a giant tractor. 
There was a plow. There were all kinds of signs. There was all kinds of stuff. And we didn't mess with any of it. We didn't do anything. But we did take the one road sign thing, which I do feel a little bit bad about. Although uh, I have a out of my workshop today, I have uh, all kinds of metal signs. I have an old stop sign. I have a uh, a speed limit sign. I have a, um, uh, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I have the neighborhood watch sign from my old neighborhood, which I uh, took in a, uh, an act of rebellion and irony. So <laughs> I definitely had other things that was worse uh, off there, worse things we could have done. So all in all, I think that it was a pretty innocent thing, but uh, um, oh, I held on to that key forever because we just thought that was going to give us so much power uh, to be able to get in and out of that building. And we we never went in there again. We were too afraid to do it a second time. Um, but uh, that, that was one of the things uh, that we did while working at the concession stand. Now, another thing that happened while we were working in Hillcrest, I refer to as the Great Bathroom Incident. Now, I will warn you, if you're eating right now, you might want to put this podcast on pause because uh, although I, I try very hard to keep this uh, podcast G-rated um, and there's not any bad language, there's definitely going to be some bad imagery <laughs> associated uh, with this story. So at the Hillcrest concession stand, uh, again, the uh, this was the outdoor baseball uh, concession stand. So you had the big window that faced the baseball diamond. You had the window on the side, but the backside of the building were the public restrooms. Now the bathrooms had in them, whatever the minimum amount of equipment you could put in a public bathroom and call it <laughs> a public bathroom. There were uh, a couple of toilet stalls. There were, the walls were cinder blocks. Uh, the floor was concrete with a drain. Uh, we didn't clean the bathroom. I assume somebody from the city came every so often and, and hosed it out and whatever went down the drain was <laughs> how they cleaned the floors. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they weren't disgusting, but, uh, they certainly weren't, you know, what you would imagine at a, uh, a high end spa <laughs> bathroom. Uh, and there were separate bathrooms, one for women and one for men. So, uh, one of the byproducts of working at a job where you go and you eat hot dogs and popcorn and chili and nachos and candy and junk and soda for hours on end is that you're going to have to go to the bathroom. And uh, it's not always number one. Sometimes it's number two. And so on this particular night, and this was a night, uh, I remember specifically that Jeff and Andy were not 16 yet. Their parents had dropped them off at the concession stand. And I had ridden my motorcycle there. Uh, so at one point in the evening and maybe halfway through the night, uh, I said, guys, I got to go to the bathroom. And they said, okay, which was not a big deal. It happened. We, we did it all the time. And so I, um, and now the, the thing is, is that the entrance to the bathroom was on the outside of the rear of the building. So you couldn't go through from where we worked into the back. You had to go out, out the door, walk all the way around, and then go in the entrance of the bathroom, uh, which faced the parking lot. And so uh, I went in the bathroom, and uh, I mean, this was a uh, urgent emergency, <laughs> like things that were moving quickly. And I went in the restroom, 
and sat down as quickly as possible and uh, dropped my pants. And the minute I dropped my pants, I heard like the sound of water. And when I looked down, it appeared that the other toilet had overflowed and it was not clean water. It was yucky doo-doo water. <laughs> and my pants were acting like a sponge. <laughs> and there was nothing I could do. Uh, and so I immediately said, um, like, the thing is, is that the back of the wall the back of the bathrooms was also the sheared back of the concession stand. And so, uh, uh, I sat over there and I, maybe I had hollered, uh, at some point yelled and Jeff or Andy came over. But when they came over, I explained the situation and said, I'm stuck here. I, my pants are soaking in gross poop water. I can't put them on. Uh, neither Jeff nor Andy knew how to ride a motorcycle, nor did they have a motorcycle driver's license and they had been dropped off for the evening. There was literally nothing we could do. We did not have a phone. And so I believe if I remember correctly, I sat in that stall for about two hours until Jeff's mom came to pick him up. Now, Jeff's mom lived much closer to these places than I did. I lived another 10 minutes past, um, uh, away from, from the city. And if I remember right, when his mom finally showed up, uh, at 10 o'clock at night, they ran to her house and got me a pair of Jeff shorts and brought them back up so that I could then basically walk out of the, bathroom or to a part that wasn't wet, uh, and change into these shorts. Uh, and I do remember this. I threw those pants away. <laughs> there was a big barrel trash can right there. And I threw the pants away. <laughs> I did not want anything to do with those pants ever again. Uh, so yes, that was the great bathroom incident at Hillcrest. And let me tell you, I drive by Hillcrest Park a um, couple of times a week, and every time I look at that building, I can see that bathroom, and I just shake my head. I, I still remember that um, to this day. Now, there was one bit of drama that came with the concession stand. Again, this was uh, the Hillcrest concession stand, and the drama was we went to work one day. Uh, we had all been dropped off or I'd, I'd ridden my motorcycle. Jeff and Andy had been dropped off. And when we went to open the door, the door was open. It was already open. Uh, I seem to remember the door had a padlock on it, but for whatever reason, the door was open and it should not have been. And when we went inside, that place had been ransacked. Now, in retrospect, uh, if you are an adult or you are a crackhead. <laughs> and by the way, welcome to the show, all my <laughs> crackhead listeners. Um, I think you take things like uh, anything that's metal that can be possibly sold uh, for metal or things that can be sold to a restaurant supply place or things like that. 
But what was missing was mostly candy. And that tells me that this was kids that had broken in. And um, so uh, I don't remember how we told – we got a hold of somebody and, and Jeff's mom came up there and there was another lady uh, named Pat who would stock the concession stand. And so – and our theory was and is uh, that Pat had forgot to put the lock back on. Um, but it's possible that somebody cut the lock and took it. But we always thought that maybe Pat forgot to lock the door. Um, but uh, it was – we don't have any proof of that. It was that was just our theory at the time, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, I mean, when when you're when you're a kid, you're like, well, that's a crazy thing, you know, that that it got broken into. But when you're an adult, this is a serious thing. And I remember them like starting to point fingers as adults, like who is responsible. And one of the things that was floated around was that we had done it, that me and Jeff and Andy had done it. Now let me tell you. Uh, we were dumb teenagers, but we weren't dumb enough to bite the hand that feeds us. We worked there. We could get all the stuff we wanted for free. I could go there and eat 50 Kit Kats and nobody really ever said anything. I could eat popcorn until I puked, you know? So why would we come break in and steal stuff that we were allowed to eat during the clock and get a concession stand shut down that was paying us a lot of money. <laughs> it makes no sense. I've read enough uh, detective books to know there's no motive. <laughs> we don't have a motive to do that. Um, but the adults were pointing fingers. And I think a finger got pointed uh, back towards us as kids. Now, the uh, everything got restocked. Everything got reset up. And then like two nights later, someone broke in again. And so, you know, everybody had been on kind of high alert, like, all right, make sure the door's locked, make sure all the, and, and, you know, we know that everything was locked up and, and they found somebody had busted the lock off the second time and somebody had broken back in and, and stole candy and stuff and everything again. Um, I remember there was one thing that, um, uh, Jeff had said was, uh, Jeff had come up with a plan. He said he was going to take his dad's gun and sleep in the concession stand. And then whenever he, whenever someone tried to break in, he was going to hold him at gunpoint <laughs> until the police came, which when you're in, when you're 15, you go, that's a great idea. Let's do that. But, um, that, that didn't come to fruition. We, we never uh, implemented that plan. Uh, but what happened was at the end of the night, uh, one of the adults would come and we would completely empty out the concession stand. So you have to imagine this place is, I mean, it is in downtown uh, Yukon, but, um, you know, it's on a strip of road, like across the street is fences for a neighborhood. Like there's nobody that can keep an eye on it unless you're actually parked there. And I remember there being uh, different plans like maybe somebody would sleep there overnight or somebody would keep an eye on it, you know, whatever. But I don't think any of those things happened because what the easier thing was is that um at closing time an adult just showed up and took all the candy. So they loaded up all the stuff um and took it with them because they weren't you know, whoever was breaking in wasn't stealing, you know, the popcorn maker. They weren't stealing the the CO two canister for the the soda machine. They were just, you know, taking things and gumball and Reese's pieces and stuff like that. So, uh, that, that did put a, a stop to it, removing all the candy every night. But I feel like that's kind of the beginning of the end, uh, for the concession stand and definitely was the beginning of the ending, 
for us. Uh, the uh, concession stand, you know, was kind of a, a kid job. You know, I mean, there were a lot of kids. I remember before I worked there, even at 14, there were kids younger than us, like, you know, 11 and 12, that one of those jobs. And we had got the jobs when, when I was 14 and worked there all the whole time I was 14, the whole time I was 15. Um, and Jeff and Andy had turned 16, you know, and they were still working there. But we were we were aging out uh, of that job for sure, you know. Um, and, and so with those break-ins, it just kind of felt like, you know, when people are looking at us like, Hey, they're the guys that are breaking. And it wasn't us, you know, it really, really wasn't. Um, but, uh, I mean, we broke into the city building. Sure. <laughs> but I wouldn't break into the place I worked at. That'd be silly. Um, but, um, uh, there was one other story. This is one of, uh, this is a story that changed my life. I'll, I'll say that. You must know, if you've listened to episodes of You Don't Know Flack, that I am a very uh, empathetic and sympathetic person. I am a guy who will – I will go out of my way. If I see somebody uh, in a wheelchair, I'll make eye contact with them and I'll say, hey, what's up? I – and it's hard to explain because I don't only do that (laughs) um, to – uh, you know, someone in a wheelchair or some, you know, like I hold the door for lots of people. And so it's difficult for me to explain, but I'm, I'm a very inclusive person. Uh, if I am in a social situation and I see one person who's being excluded and it could be, um, because you know, their skin's a different color. It could be because maybe they just don't know anybody who's there. Maybe they came late or they came early or whatever. It doesn't matter to me The the reason that they're being excluded is not important to me. Uh, the fact that somebody is in a social setting that's not having a good time, I'll go talk to that person. I will make sure uh, I'll go make small talk and, um, you know, I'll make sure that they have what they need. I'll make sure, you know, whatever. I'm just that type of person. I don't, uh, I don't want to offend people. I don't want other people to have a bad time. I don't want other people uh, to feel excluded. And so, uh, this story happened, uh, in the fall, uh, of a baseball season. So I remember it was cold. It was a cold and wintry, uh, type day or, you know, cold fall day. Temperatures were cold. It was the second game. So it was later in the evening. The wind was blowing. I mean, if it was in the forties, it would not have surprised me. Now, the front of the concession stand at Hillcrest, uh, which was looking at a baseball diamond, was literally six to eight feet away from the back of the bleachers of uh, metal stands that people sat in to watch the baseball game. And so, uh, you know how kids are. Kids want to go sit on the top row of bleachers. And so the top row of bleachers, uh, I mean, I definitely, like, I couldn't reach out and touch kids that were sitting there, but I could, you know, I could definitely hit one with a candy bar. (laughs) why I would want to, um, but they weren't that far away and they were definitely close enough that you could have conversations with them or, or say things to them, you know? And so one day, uh, Jeff and Andy and I were horsing around in the concession stand and we were, sometimes we would talk to the kids or heckle the kids, you know, or say, Hey, you better come over here and buy some Cokes, you know, just drumming up business, whatever, you know? And there was a kid sitting, there was a group of kids and there was one that was sitting on the end. And because it was so cold, he had his arms tucked into his t-shirt. Uh, and so I go, 
And so we were we were just heckling these kids, you know, like one was wearing his his hat backwards or something, and I we said something like, you know, uh, you know, you know, if you turn that hat around, then it'll work like how it's supposed to work. You know, like trying to explain to them that uh, the the brim would keep the sun out of their eyes. Uh, just just goofy stuff like that. And that kid was sitting on the end, and I go, "Hey," uh, I said, "What happened? Did your arms freeze and fall off, or something like that?" Because it was cold, you know. And this kid turned around to me, and I immediately saw that he had no arms. <laughs> I'm only laughing out of complete shock and embarrassment. I was mortified. And this kid turned around and looked at me with the saddest puppy dog eyes. And he said, no, I was just born this way. (laughs) And I was like, I, I did not know what to say. I was mortified is an understatement. I did. I was literally speechless. And I said something like, I said, Oh, I said, I was just kidding. You know, you looked cold. Why don't you come over here and get some hot cocoa? And that kid came up because now I was afraid as you, as you might be as a teenager, like now I'm afraid that he's going to go tell his mom that I'm making fun of a kid with no arms. <laughs> God, I felt so terrible. And and he came over and I was like, I was like, you know what? It's funny. You're the hundredth customer. And so you can have whatever you want for free. And he was like, really? And I was like, yep. You know, I was like, here's a candy bar and here's, here's some popcorn. And here's, I mean, I gave this kid so much free stuff. And I, I mean, Andy and Jeff were um, trying to control their laughter, but it wasn't laughing at the kid. It was like this nervous laughter of like, what has just happened? And I'm telling you, like the way these kids were sitting and he was wearing a coat over his shirt and there was no arms in the sleeves of the coat. And so it just looked like he had his arms inside his shirt. I swear on all that's holy. I would never say that. Um, especially now thinking like to a child, I mean, this kid was probably 12 and it has probably had a really, really rough, rough life, like both up until that moment. And probably since then, I have never felt smaller in my entire life than that moment. And it really, um, it both, it taught me a lesson in, um, watching what you say in front of some, you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, you know, being careful in what you say in front of people, you know, like, like reading the situation. Um, and also it, it really did kind of change in me this moment where I was like, I just felt so bad. And I maybe have been trying to make up for that moment over the past 30 years, 35 years or whatever. Um, but I really legitimately, as I'm telling you now, uh, have never felt worse in my life. It was absolutely awful. I just had that pit in my stomach. Like I have just made fun of a kid and I didn't mean to, I felt really, really bad. Um, and, um, uh, while working on this episode, I reached out to Jeff and I reached out to Andy and I asked them if they had any memories of working at the concession stand. And uh, you have to understand that my memory works different than other people's. Uh, when I asked Jeff 
about working at the concession stand, he mentioned two or three of the stories that I had included in 20 bullet points that I already had. You know, they were a subset uh, and they were all things that I had remembered. Um, and, and Andy was the same way. He had, he had mentioned a few things, but both of them said, you remember that kid? And I was like, don't even say it. <laughs> don't even say it. Yes, I remember it. Of course, I remember it. I still feel bad about it today. Um, yes, I do remember that moment. Uh, and so it was a, a, a very unfortunate event um, that uh, uh, none of us will forget. And it's possible that that happened before uh, the time that I got my pants soaked in poop. And if so, there's a word for that. It's called karma. <laughs> and that's what I got. Um, so anyway, the, the last memory I have, and this is kind of a, a strange memory, but this was, uh, towards the end. I remember Andy had his, uh, car and this was during the summer or fall of 1989 and this was uh coming up towards the big build up of Batman that was about to be released uh in movies this was the the reboot of Batman uh with uh, Michael Keaton and this was a, a huge uh huge thing that was happening um uh you know if you weren't there it's hard it's hard to uh, it's hard to explain what a big thing this was, uh, but you could go get um, Batman t-shirts. I had a Batman t-shirt. Everybody had a Batman t-shirt. Everybody had all these things. And Taco Bell was having a, uh, a tie-in uh, for, for Batman. And so we had gone to the concession stand. Andy and I had gone to the concession stand and the woman, and this was not uh, Jeff's mom or anybody else, it was a different member of the board, but whoever uh, was supposed to come open the concession stand did not open the concession stand. Uh, when, well, the door was unlocked, but when we got there, there was nothing there. Like, there was no ice, so we couldn't serve drinks. Um, I think the CO2 thing was empty. Um, like, the, the they didn't bring the popcorn or the oil for the popcorn. Like, this was all stuff the adults would do, and they had just not done it. So we arrived at a concession stand where we could not run the business. All the things that were supposed to be set up just weren't done, and we didn't have a way to do them. Uh, I, they hadn't brought the money, so we couldn't take money and make change or anything. And so we basically called an audible, and um, we decided to go down the street to Taco Bell. And so uh, Andy and I went down to Taco Bell and Andy reminded me of this story. And the reason why it was so memorable is because this was uh, when Taco Bell was giving away these giant plastic, uh, I want to say 32 ounce, maybe they're 44 ounce, but they were big plastic cups. There were four different ones and they all had Batman on them for the Batman movie. And so we went down and uh, Taco Bell was, a quarter mile away from uh, where Hillcrest was, but we had just gone down the street and we sat down there and we ate Taco Bell and we, uh, and we ended up buying enough drinks uh, while we were there. I think it was, if you spent 99 cents, you got one of those drinks and we bought all four of the plastic cups. So we had all those. And, and then uh, eventually, I mean, we went home and there was a big backlash from that. And uh, you know, the, the JC members were like, well, you should have told somebody, but, in retrospect, like as an adult, yep, I should have gone to a phone, called somebody and said, hey, there's nothing here. But 
Um, you know, as kids, we didn't think that way. We were like, the adults haven't done their job. They didn't open it up and there's nothing for us to do. So we're going to split. And that's, you know, right or wrong. That's what we did. And uh, I think that was really the end, uh, for us. Again, Andy and Jeff were now 16. Um, I was coming up on 16 and the jobs in fast food, uh, didn't pay a whole lot more based on, you know, what you take out taxes and stuff. But, uh, when I got my first fast food job, I immediately leapt, uh, up to 40 hours a week. I, my junior and senior year, when I started working at pizza places and, and other fast food places, I worked 40 hours a week. And so I, I ended up making a lot more money. Um, I wasn't eating quite as much candy, but then again, uh, I, I lost some weight when I <laughs> quit the concession stand job as well. I mean, we were just, you know, un, unlimited, unrestricted in the amount of stuff we, we ate and drank at that job. When I think back about the concession stand and I am often reminded of the concession stand, one of the greatest things, if you're a nostalgic person, like I am is living as an adult in the same town that you grew up in as a kid. So I drive past the Hillcrest concession stand a couple times a week. I go by the community center. I see the old concession stand there by the T-ball the fields. And, um, you know, when my kids played basketball, they played at the community center. And I would walk by and I would see young kids work in the concession stand. And I just tell my wife, you know, I used to do that. <laughs> I used to work right there. Um, and so that's one of the the cool things about, you know, like I said, growing up where you lived is that you are reminded uh, of those things. And uh, we outgrew, outgrew that job. We moved on to bigger and better things. But uh, when I think about the concession stand, when I see those places, all I can think of is it was like a two-year-long slumber party. And that's not exactly the exact kind of uh, and it's not an exact comparison because we didn't stay overnight. Um, but it was that feeling when your mom would take you over to your friend's house and their mom would order pizza or have junk food and you would hang out with your buddy or a couple of buddies and you would tell jokes and have a good time and all this. And then it would end and you would go home. And it was like that three, four, five times a week for two years. Um, and I don't remember any time getting mad at Jeff or getting mad at Andy. I'm sure they were both at different times mad at me because <laughs> that's who I am. Um, but I just remember this job and it was my first job of hanging out with my two best friends, eating junk food, telling jokes talking about computers, talking about skateboarding, talking about music, talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up, just every day spending hours with your buds. Uh, and I've done a lot of jobs since then, and none of them have led to as many good memories as working at the concession stand did. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord. Or leave a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. 
If you'd like to support my show, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed located at podcast.roboHara.com. To hear more podcasts from me, like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flax, Like a Doss, Throwback Reviews, Multiple Sadness, my goodness, what a lot of shows, visit podcast.roboHara.com for links and information about these podcasts. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you now know a little bit more about Flack. We'll see you next time at your nearest concession stand. Finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of Patreon listeners like these. For my 8-bit supporters, that includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Chris Folds, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, Dave Zilly, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Stryanisi, Extent to the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Ekroth, Mark Alley, Matthew Perron, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Hope, Patrick Markey, Paul Morano, Petzl, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Bird, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. And for my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Michael Ryan, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, John Hudson Mackay and Scott Van Drasek, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, Zyke, and Mr. Wacky. Okay, um, I am about one-third the way through recording this podcast, so when you get home, I may okay. not come out of my room. Okay, I will uh, wait until your door's open then. Okay, great. All right, bye-bye. Bye.